Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Whitten, and my co-host, Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what separates the doers from the thinkers. Mark is the CEO of Action for Happiness. His journey of awakening from a typical middle-class go-with-the-flow mentality to sharing a stage with the Dalai Lama is one that sets him apart. Mark is a very thoughtful and considered man. When he applies himself to a task, he does so consciously. and He does it with care, deep thought and diligence. The fact that the movement that he's helped to build is so focused on action is exactly why we so admire him and his team of volunteers. Richard Layard may be the inspiration behind Action for Happiness, but Mark is the person that's made it happen. In this conversation, you'll get a taste of why and how. Hello. Hello. Hello, Mark Williamson from Action for Happiness. Um, what that was fantastic, was it? The, the ceremony, but we're sitting in. We work in. This isn't the Google Building, is it? It's not the Google Building. No, we're in Waterhouse Square, just off Holman. That's it, central London, and <laughs> we just attempted the ceremony, but we well, we're not allowed to talk about what happened in the ceremony. No, actually, it wasn't quite as good as the last one, but but how was it for you, Mark? I, I was intrigued and I loved it, and okay. I'm I'm still baffled as to how to solve the particular challenge you set. Well, we can't there. talk about what happens. We will. Yeah. Um, we will. What what goes in the uh, ceremony stays in the ceremony. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great, but lovely to um, be spending some time with you, especially this close close to Christmas. Thank you for oh, pleasure um, for taking some time out um so we like to start these these um conversations with uh with a kind of question of if you met somebody for the first time um and said and they said what do you do how do you spend your time how, how do you tend to answer that question so we found that normally there's a short answer and a, and a, and a more involved answer so which would you like well give us the short one first and then and then do the one where it's like oh, actually i really want to get to know this person so i'm going to tell them a lot more uh, well, if by what do I do, they mean kind of how do I spend my working life? I say I run uh, a non-profit charity movement um, called Action for Happiness, all about trying to create a happier and sort of more caring world. Uh, but I might also say I'm a dad and a passionate family man and a lover of sport and random hobbies <coughs> and generally an enthusiast for life and all its, its random richness. Um, so... Uh, it depends on the context, and that's a sort of medium next version, maybe. Yeah, okay, fantastic. And if I said to you, uh, well, Action for Happiness sounds really, really interesting. I happen to know a bit about Action for Happiness. So, um, uh, but tell me more about that and about um, w- w- what you do and, and, and why you do that um, through the lens of Action for Happiness. Sure. So, I might just take a step slightly before that, which is one, one of the perhaps most in, important questions is to me and I hope to all of us in some ways is what really matters Mm. in life and I think that we are bombarded with unhelpful answers to that question from modern consumer culture from the narratives we've grown up with from ourselves actually and often uh, many many people myself included for many years and we may come onto this find ourselves living lives that are sort of on autopilot sort of following other people's expectations pursuing material aims trying to be, quote, successful without really either feeling fulfilled by that or really knowing you know, what particular ladder it is we're, we're trying to run up so quickly and where we're heading. So I think in some ways, I think of Action for Happiness as an attempt to answer that question of what really matters in life. 
And it tries to do that, I think, both from a personal and a sort of societal level. So I discovered individually, as many others have, that what really makes for happiness is not about the having and the earning and the consuming. It's about the being at peace with myself, being in connection with others and doing something that is sort of meaningful and purposeful. And what I want for the society I live in is a world where people feel fulfilled and happy and are good to each other. And that's not, sadly, what we see in many parts of both the Western world and the world as a whole. And so the, 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 the mission of Action for Happiness is really to help people be both experience and help create a happier world. So that's about how do I look after my own well-being? But this is much more than just self-help. It's about how do we contribute to something that is better for all of us? So how can we be in our schools, in our families, in our communities in a way that's good for everyone's well-being? So our principle is really that we, we, we take the science, we take what we know really makes a difference about good relationships, resilience, kind of meaning and purpose in life. And we try and bring that to life for people in their schools, communities, workplaces. And it's all starting with the individual. So how can I make a difference? That's what I love about you know, the work with Do Something Different, is this idea that actually we each have the ability to, to affect how we are that, that really matters. It mm. affects us and it affects others. And w- we think that the most powerful thing we can do in creating that happier world is to help everyone recognize that their actions matter, they can be happier, and they can contribute, even in tiny ways in their families and communities so that's that's both the the sort of personal passion and the big picture mission it's really in some ways big picture cultural change through the lens of how do we help everyone make little changes in their lives yeah fantastic and 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 i'd say just like from a personal point of view good for you and thank you for devoting your life to, to 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 that cause because it's misunderstood misrepresented and probably one of the most important parts of um modern culture that I was as you were saying that I was I was wondering to myself where where did we go so wrong and I and, and maybe just as a as a tangential question it might be useful to to understand your your point of view on that because you've spent so much time working in this in this domain what why 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 is happiness not considered important um what what, what was it that went so wrong it's a brilliant question and I've never really been asked it quite that way before actually if you look back at the 18th century enlightenment thinkers like Bentham and others were saying that the think the, the ultimate mark of a good society is is the greatest the greatest happiness of the greatest number if you look at the original sort of American declaration of independence and Jefferson talked about the only legitimate aim of government uh, yeah. is, is the happiness of the yeah. people so and the uh, the so irony of today so why indeed but the this has been a long-standing uh, kind of really important stream of modern thinking or kind of historical thinking about that what really matters overall is people being able to thrive, flourish, to feel good about their lives. I think we've gone wrong in a couple of ways. One is we got a little bit too obsessed with the sort of um, the thinking mind, uh, what's, what's the right way to describe this? The, the sort of scientific study of life and the fact that everything's become quantified yeah. means that we've perhaps uh, got a little bit disconnected from our inner lives and our emotional selves and so how almost we really feel. That, that whole mantra, if you can't measure it, then it doesn't matter yes. or it's not there. But and actually a lot of the stuff we're talking about here you, you, you maybe can't measure it. Well, you can't measure well, it scientifically. you can measure it, but you, I think the point you're making is still valid, which is the more we've quantified things, the more we've lost our sort of connection with yeah, our instincts and our humanity. Sure. And I mean, I come from a scientific background. When I first discovered all this, I, it was a real wake-up call to that emotional side of life that I'd sort of neglected. But I think the other major aspect of where we've gone wrong is, um, you know, in the 1930s, we brought in, in, in response to the Great Depression, these measures of economic progress mm. that, in one level, have been hugely beneficial. They've helped 
shape modern society, drive innovation, technological change, progress in health and all kinds of wonderful things. But we then got a bit obsessed with it and we said, oh, well, the only measure of progress is GDP growth at the, mm. at the um, sort of system level and then sort of, you know, personal wealth at the individual level. Mm. And then much of marketing machine and the consumer culture is driven around maximizing, you know, growth of companies, for countries, for people. And it's a rather shallow view of success, mm. I think. So there are, there are, what you're saying is that there are times when it is appropriate or what, or whatever the measures are, they might be just appropriate at that moment in time. I think that's right. I think that uh, if you're um, you know, a, a country at an earlier stage of development or somebody on low or no incomes, uh, by almost by far the best thing you can do for the well-being of that, that nation or that yeah. individual is to give them the <coughs> basics that they need to mm. be able to cover life's essentials mm. food security shelter safety but there becomes a point but there's a sort of diminishing returns point yeah. here, which economists have known for years and in fact in some ways e economics has always been the study of what they call utility but really is sort of human happiness mm, and that's very interesting um, but it, but it, but of course because it couldn't really be further away from that in practice well, could it indeed. that's really interesting yeah uh, but actually this idea of you know what we're doing as members of the economy is trying to maximize utility we're trying to have the best possible experience but unfortunately that's become defined rather by like do i have enough am i seen as important rather than do i feel okay with myself mm. am i contributing yeah so i think we've uh, and you know of course uh, the marketing message is you know coca-cola saying open happiness in a fizzy drink <laughs> and the f we've sort of cheapened this idea of happiness so one mm. reason we've gone wrong is partly <coughs> a, a slightly british lack of willingness to talk about the emotional side of life mm. but that's true elsewhere as well but it's also the fact that we've, we've so cheapened the idea of happiness that it's about a consumer product or it's about a sort of rather glib, smiley, happy, pretending it's all fine. We're talking about the gritty reality of a life well lived, which mm. includes losing loved ones, being ill, getting injured, messing stuff up. Sure. That is, you know, it's not about denying negative emotions. Like anger is a good response to like, you know, being wronged. Fear is the correct response, or a healthy response to danger. And, you know, all these kind of negative emotions have a really strong purpose. None of what we're doing in promoting happiness is saying we should be smiley happy all the time. Mm, mm. But, but actually, when you say to parents, what do you want most for, their, for your children? Just want them to be happy. Just want them to be safe. happy. And yeah. they mean, yeah. you know, safe, healthy, educated, connected. So at different times, societies may need something, a different focus, and governments need to focus on something mm. different. And as individuals, the three of us sitting here now, you know, what, what, what is going to increase our happiness levels will probably be different for all three of us. Mm. Um, so it's all about an individual understanding of what it is. So that's a really important point. So people often say this phrase, um, happiness means different things to different people. I slightly disagree with the one interpretation of that, which I think the experience of feeling good about our lives is universal. Mm. It's a fundamental drive that we all have. It's the thing we want most for the people we love the most. That that parent's instinct about, I just want my child to be happy. This is, we would like the people we care about to feel good. We would like to feel good ourselves. And that's, you know, even in light of the fact that we will all have these adversities and hardships. So, so I think happiness is universal, but what the point you're making, I think is really important, which is the things that make us happy differ hugely from one week to the next from one yeah. week to the next from yeah. you know obviously there's a genetic component there's a early life experiences which we might talk about which is hugely important um there's the kind of current circumstances there's other people's expectations there's your own mental well-being but there's you know habits hobbies behaviors yeah, hugely yeah. variable and that's part of the beautiful tapestry of human experience and those negative experiences i mean i always think it's you know we're in london and you know 
we're going back to Brighton and mm. you know it will probably um, there's possibly going to be a chance that the train will be delayed uh, at some point and you can either get unhappy about that or you can say it's an opportunity mm. so sometimes there's an opportunity to turn what seems like a negative into a positive positive. And, 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 and I know so I think where Ray's going and I know it's something that you promote is that happiness is not something you discover it's something that comes from within it's not an external force that happens to you it's something that's within your control yes so I, I, I very much agree but with with a slight caveat we need to be careful of and and just on 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 Ray's point about the kind of whatever happens we have a sort of element of choice over how we respond I think is what you're saying yes that's right yeah. and I think that's <coughs> unbelievably important and actually in many ways that is the ancient Greek sort of stoic philosophy mm. it's also at the heart of modern cognitive behavioural therapy mm. this idea of we are not sort of at the mercy of our circumstances so much as how we choose to interpret them and what we do about them and I think this should be a life skill that every child yes. learns yeah. in every you know mm. in every school and every family this whole idea of we can't necessarily change what happens to us but we can choose how we respond yeah. it's a bit like that old um, what's it called the serenity prayer you know give me the grace to um, accept the things I cannot change to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference yeah, I think that's nice. amazingly yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. profound but to your point about happiness comes from within yes absolutely because of what we've just said however the, you, you, um, you're in danger of being um, we're in danger of being patronising to people in really difficult circumstances course, yeah. with that because it's really hard to choose to be happy if you've been abused as a child if you're living in poverty yeah, yeah. if you've suffered a really severe illness <coughs> or disaster so there's a sense of like we do really need to understand the context as yeah, well so so I think it's, it comes from I think it comes from both within and without mm-hmm. you know the circumstances of our lives do affect us we have these fundamental needs not just for the physical needs of shelter food security but also the psychological needs of feeling connected feeling in control of what we do um, feeling that what we do matters in some way mm. um and yet within that, you know, the, the, the story I always use is Viktor Frankl. Have you read Man's Search for Meaning? Yeah, yeah. So that really powerful, you know, dark and very moving book about Viktor Frankl, who was an Auschwitz survivor in a concentration camp, you know, in a situation which I'd like to hope none of us ever face anything that, that dark or challenging. So it's l- friends and loved ones dying, unbelievable sort of hardship of you know, conditions and the way they're treated. And... He, um, I won't say he managed to thrive, but he managed to survive in those circumstances and inspire others, including some of the guards in the concentration camp, with his attitude and his ethos. And the famous quote, which I always remember, is, um, everything can be taken from a man, or indeed a woman, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, should choose one's own response to any given circumstance. Mm, exactly. yeah. Which it. again like reflects the Stoic philosophy. It's Stoic, it's, but it's, it's kind of the best life skill we can ever it learn. Is, and it's yeah. just the hardest thing to do. Because yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're in that flash of like, oh, she makes me so angry. Oh, I can't believe it's gone wrong. I've let mm. everyone down. It's really hard to notice how much of that you're constructing yourself. Yeah. But sometimes just noticing it can be a really important Absolutely. step. Absolutely. Because if you're on autopilot, you don't notice it yes I think that's right it's sort of this idea of mindful living um, that that even if you don't change how you respond as you say just the going oh I'm angry right now yeah you know you might not be able to change how you feel but just to be able to do wisdom to sort of be one step removed to that so they sometimes call it metacognition it's like not just being sort of upset but to notice in the moment that you're upset yeah even it, if you it seems to me it. it's always it's always the first step to doing something about it yes 
to, to stop it happening another time or or noticing it quicker and changing yes. it around quicker yes. next time you don't want to <clears throat> you don't want to end up in a rut or in chaos you want to notice it before you get to those places so that you can turn things around mm, and, and do something do something yeah to change the direction of travel yeah. So to, just to put a bit more shape around action for happiness as an organization, mm. um, and then, and then what, <coughs> what would be good to do is to just step back into your past and talk mm. about a couple of things. One, how did you ever end up running a, an organization called ha Action for Happiness and, 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 and being able to make that your life's purpose? But also... Um, I, presume that that was, I presume that was a careers... You know, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Careers yeah. guidance thing, I, well, and I they that, said, uh, "Just put in one I of those surveys." Yeah, 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 what yeah, you yeah, want to yeah. do is start yeah. a happiness movement. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I'll do that then. And and also, uh, when when we get into that, it would be really good to also then reflect on um, the choices that, that that many people have around how they align what they do in the world to work, because you're a manifestation of almost the pinnacle of <coughs> blurring the two around a, a, a mm. personal sense of. Um, agency and, and purpose so it'd be good to, to reflect right. on that but just um just to finish up on on the action for happiness piece so that people have an have an idea of of, of the the scale of the movement um there's tens of thousands of members yes yeah, so i mean people are very welcome to visit actionforhappiness.org and find out more and get involved um we've had many millions of visitors to our our platform we have now over a million followers across social platforms um in the online community in some ways. More importantly, still we have about 120,000 sort of members wow. who've signed up yeah. and, and sort of made a pledge to get involved in some way. Now, even though that varies hugely from someone who's just sort of thinking, oh, I'd like to receive more information about this, through people who are maybe using our resources in their workplaces and schools and so on, to people who've come to live events, to then people who've been in one of our um, sort of rather immersive eight-week courses, to then people who've gone on to actually volunteer to run those courses to join our team to sort of set up local community cafes, all kinds of uh, levels of engagement. So the, the, the fundamental idea of Action Happiness starts with <coughs> an, an individual desire to take action. So mm -hmm. the clues in the name Action for Happiness, very much like the, the do something different um, and the kind of the, the whole spirit behind this this podcast, really. Um, and, and so what we say to people is that you can use your unique sphere of influence and skills and passions to, to, to make something happen. Mm. So if you're a teacher, we can help you bring some resources into your classroom Great. where you can help kids improve their well-being. If you're a parent, here are some ideas you can use. Maybe we've got a book for parents to use with children. Um, if you're uh, a you know someone in an organization, we've got resources you can use or we could come in and run training for you. Most importantly, if you're a member of a community, as we all are, we can help you do something locally face-to-face, -face, and that's really important, actually, that really changes lives. So our main um, intervention, for want of a better word, is we have a, a volunteer-led course. It's an uh -huh. eight-week course called Exploring What Matters. And many, many um, hundreds of people have run this in hundreds of locations now for thousands and thousands of participants. And um, it's really just a sort of um, a community conversation. So yeah. these are not expert sort of trained facilitating psychologists to teach you the answers. They are people who are saying, I'm here on a voluntary basis. We're going to go through this process together, exploring what matters in life, talking about relationships and mindfulness and dealing with adversity and working lives and communities and what really motivates us and where we're heading in our lives in a, in a really 
kind of moving in an experiential way, but not in a sort of strange, weird group therapy setting. Mm-hmm. More just a let's just have the conversations that matter because so often in modern life we're having we're chatting about nonsense. We talk about the football, the shopping, oh, the God. weather, the house prices. What we don't say is how are you feeling right mm. now and what's going on at work and are you where are you heading and how are you coping and and when people do that in a group something really amazing happens they say that's changed my life they form new friendships mm. so that's our, our main focus is helping support volunteers to make these amazing things happen but in some cases our supporters and members have a different sphere of influence so one of them is uh, lord richard layard a professor of economics uh-huh. and he spends a huge amount of time behind the scenes meeting with policymakers you know, the Secretary of State for Education, for Health, the Cabinet Secretary, and saying, look, we should be investing more in mental health. We should be changing the way we do schools. So I like to think of it as, in some ways, you know, he's no different from the person who's just experimenting with this in, mm. their, in their own family. We all have a different sphere of influence. We mm. can all make a difference. Mm. And so you know, join Action for Happiness and find out how you can make a difference would be yeah. my, my request. Yeah. That's great, and I and I will do that because I'm not a member. So um, great, so good. You've got a plus one there. Um, Dalai Lama is he? Is he? He has some level of attachment to this. So he's or? the patron of our tiny charity, which is a great <laughs> honour, and it comes because he was has been at a variety of events with uh, Richard Laird, who I mentioned, one of our co-founders, uh, often on the subject of what he likes to call secular ethics and I find this really interesting because here's somebody who I think universally we recognise as a believer in happiness Mm. and compassion and a sort of common humanity and yet of course is a figurehead for both a nation and a very strong link to to Buddhism and yet he talks very openly and I think what makes him stand out for many other people with what you might call a religious connection is he says we need to be beyond religion we need to have a Mm. kind of sense of what does it mean to live a good life that welcomes all faiths and none Mm. Uh, and when he saw Action for Happiness, I think he saw here's a secular organisation that is trying to help people, help people live a good life, but but to care about each other and be kinder and more compassionate in the way that's open to all. So he, I think that's why when we asked him, he agreed to oh, be fantastic. patron. And, and so, so he sees that almost as a bridge beyond religion because there's enough of what he cares about that, as you say, goes beyond religion. And he wants to make sure that he can spend his time in a community beyond the people that are that are niched in to, 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 to the particular things that he believes in. Yes, well, I mean, there are all kinds of lovely Dalai Lama quotes which people will be aware of, but one of my favourites is, um, there was no need for temples or philosophy. Um, you know, my my temple is my heart and my religion is kindness. You know, so he's always had this sense of, yeah. there's a fundamental universal human sense of, we care for each other, we care for ourselves. Uh, and he's not been ever dogmatic about a particular faith perspective but he also talks about this idea of secular ethics which is we need to create a new way of being in in societies around the world that is open to all and and no religious perspectives but uh, still has a sense of values because the problem is as we've in the west for example let go of religion we've also let go of what does it mean to be compassionate have, what, yeah, what, what it matters and and so you know, materialism and self-centered consumerism is a very poor substitute for a sense of purpose and shared humanity and, and what's he like well i've met him twice once in his hotel before an event we did together and then actually at an event where i hosted him and i'm never someone who's starstruck in any way because um, i'm just not particularly into celebrity and didn't feel starstruck just more felt i mean obviously that there's a huge entourage around him because of who he is um, but actually what I saw in him was a, a, a human being that has a big heart mm. so the, the entourage might have been caring about him meeting the right person but he was more interested in just smiling and making a connection he didn't manage to get him down the pub or anything no, like I didn't manage to get him down the pub but <laughs> we, we you know he, we, he, he's very warm and loving and I particularly what I did do was bring a teacher 
who's one of our long-standing supporters, who then in turn brought some school children. Ah, great. Been doing great. work with, and, and to watch the Dalai Lama interact with these school children was just really lovely because they're different culture, different age, and yet he's playful and sort of tugging at their hair and joking. And these kids had made a lovely collage of inspiring messages that they'd hand drawn to give to the Dalai Lama. So he basically got given all these happiness tips from like seven-year-olds, <laughs> going like, "Smile more," and like, "You look great as you are." And he's like. <coughs> Great. I may have seen some of these ideas before, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was lovely. Um, but no, I, I think a, a, a very wise, warm and thoughtful person who genuinely would love to see this happier kind of world that we're trying to, to, to deliver. And I think in some ways he's, he, he doesn't want to create a movement and, and an army of followers all around the world, although he has that naturally and quite likes the fact that, that we're trying to do something in line with his vision. Mm. But I mean, we have to work quite hard to explain to people that we are a secular movement. Mm. This is not mm. any way you know, linked to religion. And what I love to see is when I look at the people who come on our courses, there's a mixture of atheists, um, you know, Christian, Muslim, Jew, yeah. uh, Hindu, Buddhist. It's, it's, and, it's and, and, and actually, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, I know that, 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 that what you stand for is deeply embedded in most of the religions that you just described and probably yeah. most others as well. Absolutely. So it's the, it's the commonality not and the fact that we're all human. So Absolutely. Um it's great. Okay, so let's 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 rewind the clock a bit and go back to that moment when your career teacher told you that you were going to um, be chief executive. I think I said to my career advisor, I'm interested in soliciting, meaning being a solicitor. <laughs> and I realized that was a rather inappropriate way of describing it. So you, you mentioned uh, did you mention earlier that you were you, you started as a scientist? Is that what you said? Well, winding way back, I, I, I'm very blessed to have grown up in a, in a loving family. My parents are both still alive um, in a little town in Malvern in, in the Midlands. Uh-huh. I'm a, a sort of Midlands lad, Aston Villa fan for my sins. Um, and I can see why you said football. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was just thinking now. the same yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> now, now it all has become clear. <laughs> right, okay. It's been a journey. Um, my mum is an English teacher. My dad's a, a sort of... Um, scientist uh engineer and i uh was i think always quite blessed by the fact that i had a little bit of my mum's sort of creativity and sort of uh interest in you know um language and design and sort of um non-scientific stuff as well as my dad's kind of interest in how stuff works okay so you've, um, you've so I ha- naturally got a good blend between the two parts yeah, of the brain well, I'm, yeah I, i'm fortunate to have both perspectives i'm not sure i was I'm, i've always been a bit of a jack of all trades rather than master of none but I, when i got to do my, you know, my, my well actually i've been thinking about this recently in contact with my own children because school is so pressurized from such an early age now, and some of our kids have been you know, dealing with and as of their peers lots of challenges around growing up and I, I think I'm, I, I, I think this is true to say that I never felt pressured or under pressure to do exam type stuff at yeah. school until I got to like being 14, 15, 16 and it was like exam time. I was like, I, my recollection of school was like, just hung out, we learned stuff, had fun, played a sport. And I, I, I'm really grateful for that because mm. I feel that that's not quite how education is anymore. Mm. Um, I was lucky that when I did come around to focusing on stuff that we had to do that I did re- I found I had a bit of an aptitude for doing academic things although in my teenage years I nearly lost the plot completely was in bands played guitar had ridiculous hair like didn't work kind of you know, got in you know, fully drank too much did did silly things and almost completely messed up my what, kind what of kind of when you say teenage years so late teenage years so, oh, what would I have been I mean <coughs> this, this is kind of in that 
um, GCSEs to A levels type phase. Okay, so it's an important ne- Nearly messed up, um, you know, going anywhere. I remember saying, I never want to go to university. I just want to kind of hang out and be a musician and kind of like do nothing really. And uh, actually, I have one, we, this is interesting because I think I know where you, some of the inflection points you're interested in is like what led to changes. I yeah. do, one thing I really remember was um, the year before it was going to be my, I would be due to be getting my A level results. I remember going out to a nightclub a few drinks or whatever where the, the group a year ahead of us had just got their results and I remember looking at some guys who'd obviously seemed to have done well really enjoyed themselves one guy sat in the corner really depressed because he'd messed everything up and like clearly wasn't sure where his life was going and I remember th- at the time thinking next year I don't want to be that guy yeah. and it was one of the things that woke me up to going well maybe it's worth trying at school having basically been larking around for a few years and I, I mean in some ways almost all of my path since then has depended on that little bit of awareness of if I don't apply myself then I may not get anywhere although and, and, and although that, that may not be although yeah. that guy was me okay so I, I, I my CV said for a while I had two A levels I've only got one <laughs> and you know so it, it, it's there are these moments but you can recover well and it's, that's really interesting because I, as you were saying uh, what, what, what I was thinking is that that was just one fleeting moment in time for that for that guy, as as Ray just yeah. suggested, and that it will feel like the end of the world for him. But he's going through his own journey where um, he's still working stuff out. And actually, maybe it was right for him at the time oh, to I spend suspect. more time playing football or with that girl or whatever it was that he was doing that was a side effect. Um, and it's not. And it's interesting how we do draw experience from the people around us and from crises. Yeah. So the thing I was, you're making me think of is a phrase I've been using for, for year, some years now having had what I think is one, but I, I talk about a good life crisis. We talk about midlife crisis and so on, but I, for me, it's like, what are the chain, what are the sort of mini crises that could have ended up being a lot worse, but have actually sort of forced us to evaluate what really matters. And it may well be that the person I saw all those years ago was kind of forced to come to terms with what really matters to me much earlier than <coughs> I did. I mean, I think one of my, I, I, I'm not somebody who regrets anything in life, but if I had to pick one, it would be, that I didn't have that what really matters conversation with me myself until I was in my 30s really and at that point I'd applied myself to all kinds of things and I could have been using my skills and passion in a different way until Mm. that point so so where it went from from then was I you know I went off to uni and um you know I I did pursue as you were saying a sort of an engineering background and enjoyed that enjoyed the problem solving and so on had a brilliant time at university met lots of great people and so on uh, but I remember being in, a, I ended up being in a sort of research environment where I was going to a PhD and so on and thinking, oh, I, I'm feeling a bit isolated now. I'm, I ha- I'm, I'm a people person and here I am in a lab, not really talking to anyone. And I kind of almost felt like I was shrinking into myself and not really having the human connection. What, why did you end up doing a PhD? Um, because I'd done okay in my degree, done well in my degree. And was it, did you feel flattered at the opportunity to do a PhD? Yes, I think so. Because I saw that everywhere. Uh, when, when, I, when I was going yes. through the same time in my life, if you were offered, it almost felt wrong to turn it down because the world was telling you you've earned the right. Yes, and I think I had some parental expectation um, or hope that I would do this. Mm. Um, but that, that's, that's uh, interesting because I think education in particular is meant to provide you um, options. But actually particularly for those really bright students mm. that, you know, they, they get the good A-levels, they go to a good university, they get a first. Um, and then there are these big corporates out there who will just snap you up. Why mm. wouldn't they? Mm. Um, 
but actually your 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 options have narrowed in a way. That's it. Yeah, well, because it's very hard you, to say no the, to Goldman Sachs. Yeah, you're uh, being more, fifty grand a year starting salary. You're being more and more controlled by the system that you found yourself in, and it's interesting to hear that it wasn't until thirty or so before you start asking yourself the bigger questions, because. Um, who 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 encourages you and provokes you and helps you gear yourself in such a way to allow yourself to see the world mm. in, through that lens at an earlier age? Well, can I, I just I, can I just go? Sure. Sorry, just yeah. ask you a question because I think this is potentially really important because I've just been listening to um, Joe Rogan and Deontay Wilder, which you yeah. you, you told me to listen to. And, you know, and it was really his his moment was. Um, was when he became a father. Mm. For him, it was at 19. And, mm. and I suspect that it was a similar time for you. If I, Yes, my, my questioning what really matters just slightly preceded becoming a father, but I think it was, it was in a very similar sort of mindset. Um, I guess that the, the shift that I was talking about at that point is almost worth addressing before we come to that that fatherhood thing and the waking up, <coughs> which I like to think of it now. Because actually it was quite interesting and I, I think my options were sort of narrowed, but the natural path would have been to follow the academic thing. But I felt this sense of like, I want to be more connected. But I also felt something else, which I haven't really ever vocalised very effectively. But my family was very non-materialistic. My mum's a teacher, my dad was a sort of like civil servant, scientist, engineer. We didn't have a massive amount of money. We were fine, but it wasn't a kind of compared to what I then found when I was at university in mm. Bristol, surrounded by people from rather different backgrounds, it was like, oh. And, and, and I have to acknowledge, and I, and I still haven't ever been a particularly money-chasing person, but there was a driver in the media to like, say, I, I would like to earn some money to kind of get myself on the right trajectory. And that's a feeling I never really had before. No, and it um, goes back you know, to what uh, you said earlier about if you can measure it, then we take it seriously. Yes. And it's very easy to measure pounds coming into your bank account. Yeah. Very, very easy. And I think you think of it in rather a utopian terms of like, well, it opens up opportunity mm. and I can travel more. And of course, the danger is when people get on the, the Goldman Sachs type career ladder is you go in with the intention of like, I'll do it, I'll do this for a bit and then I'll do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And people get stuck in it. And I nearly had that same experience. So I, I ended up going to management consultancy, which was using my sort of engineering problem solving skills, initially a little bit of a technical role. And then I realized that I could use my relational skills and got into team leadership and running these big projects and spent a decade working for what became Accenture um, doing some, with hindsight, amazing, utterly exhausting and deeply meaningless uh, pieces of work. Mm. Yeah, so I'm working for stock exchanges, <coughs> investment mm. banks, you know, really challenging product to link up the London Stock Exchange and the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, culturally interesting, technically challenging, massive people. Yeah. And ultimately, in my view, I'm not sure it had any real worth in the world and well, left me feeling deeply I like, think this is really, really interesting because I spoke to somebody yesterday who said, you know, I asked him to if he could recommend somebody to me from the world of data analytics, and mm. and and he, he uh, and I said, "What are you doing at the moment?" And he said, "I'm working for a fintech, you know, uh, startup, and you know, I, I just gotta, you know, I just gotta make some money, and then I can start doing the social, yeah, yeah. you know, impact stuff that I really yeah. want to do." And it's it's quite, it's you know, and and having done it myself as well, you know gone down that sort of career route, made a bit of money to allow me to do the things I want to do. It's it's a massive, is that the way to do it? Or, or, or is it, is there another way where you just do what you want to do? And it's it's a really interesting. Well, actually I've had people come to me in recent years saying, look, I see you've got this fascinating path you've been on and you now do this great thing. How do I get to there? And, I, and I'm torn whether to say to them, 
go off and do something quotes conventional but keep in mind your very strong desire to get out of that and yeah. and, and switch because there's some there's some earning opportunities but there's also some learning opportunities yes that's right or is it better to just follow your passion from the beginning and I'm, I'm still torn but I think I'm more towards the latter now and I can explain where that came in for me but um, can I just yeah, interject sure. with just a tangential thing which <coughs> I th- it, I, it might just be interesting to hear it that I'm pretty sure that I heard a conversation maybe an interview with I think it was Bill Gates who apparently so if it wasn't Bill Gates it was somebody like him mm. and apparently he was incredibly deliberate in him building his business and wealth that it was a period of time to create enough opportunity in the second phase of his life to then go and be philanthropic and change the world and he's been one of the most exactly exactly so so it was really just to sort of counter that to say well there are some examples if you could if you could be that aware and that deliberate up front maybe it is a key thing there so i think there isn't a right or wrong answer i think they're all different but the key thing is aware If you can stay off autopilot, yeah, then you can pursue agreed. something and shift. Uh, or, you know, yeah. I think that's the key thing. Well, but I, I do think that there are more so today than there have been opportunities to create great businesses, earn some money, but, but actually make the world a better place while you're doing it. Yes. Now, I'm not sure Microsoft did that. I'm not sure that Warren Buffett did that. I'm pretty sure Facebook hasn't done that. So... I just don't really understand why you can't do both at the same time. I th- yeah, and I, th- I completely agree with you. I think, I think companies are starting to wake up to that, actually, because I think um, more and more that's expected from the younger generation now. That's something that, 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 that I think they're looking for more and more. But uh, the other ingredient is there's, there's always a story that can be told that brings why we do what we do to the focus in a positive way. And, it, and, I, and I just wondered... Um, going back to those days before y- your wake up moments where y- what what kind of stories were you telling yourself at that time and what kind of stories were you telling other people because as you as you I said it was I wasn't very proud to be a management consultant I found myself being this I, the, the nasty sort of uh, experience was feeling like I had two different hats like there was the, the, the nice me outside of work that people like wow yeah, yeah. yeah and then there was the me at work that was a bit more ruthless and a bit less not less values driven because I think I, I didn't do anything sort of unethical, but it was just didn't feel as congruent with how I really was. Yeah. So I felt that I was kind of almost like taking a hat on and off. Actually, interestingly, when I did switch to a, a, a socially focused job I loved, I found a different problem, which is when you're doing something you're deeply passionate about the whole time, although you're completely integrated, when do you ever stop working? Mm, mm. Um, you know, yeah. so there's another, there's a, the social entrepreneur's challenge mm. is the how do I maintain some balance but back in those days I mean I the narrative I was having initially was this is important well paid responsibility but I was running basically the the metaphor is I was charging up a ladder leaning against a really tall building going quite fast but had not looked up to see which building I was climbing mm. it was the wrong one mm. you know and, and so I found myself feeling a sense of w- meaninglessness you know I, this doesn't really matter but also then as I got more senior we were sort of being asked to make promises to clients that I knew the team couldn't really deliver and it mm. was like, this doesn't feel right and we're having to kind of then mm. do this awful rating system where we were saying to people, oh, you're not doing good enough even though they were doing great but we had to have some kind of like banding thing around. And it was just like, I don't want to be here anymore. But it, it wasn't actually that realisation that got me out of it. It was actually a physical pain problem. This is another really fascinating journey into this world I do now. So I had a, a back pain thing that started. I'm quite a sporty guy. I've been playing football and all kinds of sports for years. I got a sort of what started as a small back pain. Within like a couple of years, it was I couldn't get out of bed some wow. days. I was in constant pain, 
no kind of painkillers would touch it. I went to see all kinds of professionals. I got told I had a degenerative hereditary spinal disorder that would mean I'd be in a wheelchair, you know, in my 40s. Like, really? Uh, I got a MRI scans showing these herniated discs and damaged stuff. It was all really depressing and led to it being even more painful. <laughs> um, and my, my wife, Kate, was further along the journey towards enlightenment than me at the time. She'd been working in PR. I'd got disillusioned with that whole world um, and was retraining to be an osteopath. And she gave me a book called something like, I think it's called Back Sense. But it was basically about how the, the mental component of pain. Oh, that's incredible. Like, it's it's it so was, funny. We this is really weird. We, we were just talking about that literally days ago. Instinct. About Two the, days whole, ago. The, the whole pl the placebo effect yeah. thing. And we were talking about this research around um, people with severe knee problems really? around um well, it's back no it's back pain well we, d we went on to that but then the, the the knee thing was um uh well it was physically severe uh, knee patients where they took two groups and one group they did the knee surgery mm. which had high success rates the other group they did um, sham surgery or yeah, yeah so they they cut them open and they pretended but they just literally did nothing they just sewed them back up again the the placebo group performed better yeah better so and then the comment what we were discussing because we went on to back pain so we're going to come back to that in a sec but was well the placebo is it's similar to what you said before about the language um of happiness and how we've moved something that's actually very meaningful to a different place in in the we use of use language the term placebo effect is a disparaging thing. that's oh, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly i think it's the single most profound discovery in all I of science agree. In that because what whatever it says is that study you do yeah. whatever you're studying there's a very real effect that's based on people's expectations yeah. it's measurable repeatable if you expect a medicine of any kind an operation of any kind to have a benefit um that has a huge impact on the physiological response of your body and it's it and it changes your time. brain it changes, changes your brain yeah. it actually it lights up the part of the brain that medication would light up yes and i mean my favorite one of these we had joe marchant the um brilliant author of a book called cure also about this whole effect but <coughs> there's now a thing where um if you give someone a a, a, a kind of a, an effective medication like a i think in this case it was a painkiller uh, but you associate it with like a process so in this case they were giving painkillers with a with a green uh, colouring and a, a vanilla scent and you've got a habit of every day taking this thing um, and then gradually over two months you completely remove the ac active painkilling component down to zero you find that at the end of that period when people are given this green smelling drink that they're used to taking when they drink it not only do they feel less pain they have the kind of, sort of psychological effect the brain generates the same kind of painkilling yeah. exactly. uh, chemicals I can't remember the right names yeah. as it would do in response to the active chemicals yeah. like yeah. Wow, we we, we our expectations shape not just our physiology, but like the chemical generation and the whole kind of way our bodies interact. It's just mind blowing. One hundred percent. And the, 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 what that says, and when you say it's one of the most incredible discoveries of recent times, I agree completely. Mm. Because un, what what underpins all of that is how intrinsically linked our brains and our bodies are, and how little we know of our brains and and how they work relative to how much work we've done in understanding well, and being able to fix and our bodies I think in quotes. of all the shifts in my life this waking up to that fact was perhaps one of the most profound so when i read this book and i was initially very skeptical like why is this kind of pseudo nonsense i'm a scientist yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right yeah don't be ridiculous <laughs> you tell me this is all this pain's all in my head i can tell you it really bloody hurts darling and i've got um, the mrr scans to yeah, show you as well yeah but the first thing this book did it was very well written for a skeptic like me is like if you take people who've got back pain and you've got people who've got dodgy looking backs in MRI scans, there's no correlation. 
i.e. you can have the dodgiest looking back in a scan and no pain yeah, yeah, and loads yeah. of pain. You can have loads of pain and a perfectly fine looking back. I mean, these things aren't related. The cause of back pain isn't very often musculoskeletal damage. It's much more related to muscle tension. Huh. And what's a major source of muscle tension? It's kind of psychological stress. And I was doing that classic wow. British male thing of like, I'm not letting my emotions out. And that anger and that frustration, that stress of the job is coming out in physical tension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, it, this, this is the maddest bit. So I then learned... This was now long before we were talking about mindfulness. This is what, 15 years ago. I learned a breathing exercise, which is basically a mindfulness meditation. And I sort of recognized that I didn't need to be scared of this pain and, it, and, and sort of undid the, 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 the opposite of the placebo effect. I'd been thinking myself into pain mm. through worrying about it mm. yes. and, and tensing up more. And literally within two weeks, maybe three, I went from I can't walk most mornings and I'm in pain all the time to like running again, wow. being painful wow. for quite a lot of the time. And then every time it came back, I'd read the book again. And, and it's, it's like, here I am as a scientist, a rational person. I know this is, isn't all in my head. And yet by breathing more and changing kind of like how I approach my pain mentally, it's gone. Wow. How weird is that? And mm. so that was a massive wake up for me. And, uh, and, and so, so that, that sounds like it was a moment in your life where it allowed you to start thinking differently and seeing the world differently mm. and exploring yourself differently. How did that then translate? And I, it sounds like it was also coming at a time where you could um, l l l you could draw a parallel between the, 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 the negative side effects of the work that you weren't feeling as congruent about. Mm. How did you then draw those parallels to a point where a change happens? Well, the main response to that was, I need to get out of this job because it's making me stressed. That was the major wake up. I don't think I got quite deep enough to understand exactly the relationship between my thoughts and my physical experiences and a lot of what I now understand more with the work that we do and all these amazing sort of world experts I've had the chance to meet and work with now. But I knew I wanted to leave consulting. I, in my head, the logical thing was go do an MBA, move into a different part of business. Mm. I always wanted to kind of study more broadly. Um, and I instinctively ended up choosing a school in Switzerland, IMD. It's a, one of the kind of leading European business schools. And I didn't really know why I was choosing it. But actually, with hindsight, it was because it had this amazing focus on what they called leadership. It was actually like really intense personal soul searching and development. So during this year of you know, being with all these supposedly successful business people with an expectation that I would go off and go into a new career in telecoms or finance or mm. manufacturing or something. And... Um, you know, learn about strategy and marketing and finance. What they really cleverly did was they put you into groups and then like made you have really difficult confrontations and deal with it and talk about who's the scapegoat and what's really motivating you. And then you get to work with like a psychoanalyst for the year and like unpick what's really going on. We wrote these kind of personal, write your personal history and we all came in with these like, oh, I did this and then I did this and isn't it wonderful? And the guy, this analyst read it and went, that's not the real story. Come on, throw that away and tell me what's really going on. What really affected you as a child and I wrote this really eventually became a really kind of outpouring for the first time in my life of what's really going on the stuff that scared me as a kid the kind of influences in the family and started waking up to the fact that my life had been shaped by parental expectations and relationships and failures and this stuff that I'd been not blocking out but just as a kind of rational science guy had not been in tune with at mm. all and it was like oh my goodness there's this whole kind of dimension of life around our subconscious motivations like we might be having an overt conversation about a project and whether it's successful but what's going on under the surface is like do I trust this person yeah. do they like me am yeah. I valued am I and I, I was just like you know my, my girlfriend at the time now wife when I first 
it led me to reading lots of self-help books and so on and she started joking going oh, I can't believe you don't know this stuff already it's bloody obvious mm. <laughs> not yeah. to a guy who's been it's through amazing. a scientifically <laughs> yeah, led yeah, yeah, edu- yeah. education process it's not I'm yeah, like yeah. I'm a learner I mean, here Ab, who you know he, you know he describes it as an iceberg yes you know, yeah, you yeah. Do, there's just that bit at the oh, top that we reckon, but there's, there's, you know, there's the, depth. the beliefs that are down there. You don't even know they're your beliefs. No, no. Yeah. That's, fan- that's fascinating um, because I, <coughs> I, I feel like I've gone through the, the awakening at some point in my, in my, in my mm. past. I, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I feel like I recognize and see a lot of the kind of things that you're talking about. And I am continually surprised at how much I, ta- I and we take for granted that people have explored beyond the tip of the iceberg yeah. and they really haven't you know well, there's there's a real gap and so I, that's that's what excites me about the kind of work that you're doing because it feels like it's trying to start to address some of that maybe through a slightly different entry point um but i'm also fascinated to hear that the that in that environment in that in that mba environment were they being deliberate in understanding the importance of seeding that into the cohort of people that were there for various reasons but ultimately because they wanted to develop themselves in a career i think they recognize that really successful leaders have an element of self-awareness and humility and understanding of the human condition and what they really what they ended up doing was tearing down in some (laughs) ways the ego of these quotes super successful Mm. you know i'm i'm doing great kind of you know keen young business people and help them realize that they're underneath they're all still teenagers that desperately want to be loved and valued and appreciated and don't really know where they're heading and it was a it was really hard to take but a lot of us took a bit of an emotional bashing of like we're not this mask we've built up for ourselves but if we can work out what's really driving us why it is we're so neurotic about pleasing people my my Mm. big awakening was i'm a people pleaser Mm. i've always been a i've always liked to be praised and I am driven by like wanting to please people and that's healthy in some ways, but can be unbelievably destructive in terms of my decision-making and my self-care and um, honesty with myself and so on. And that was like, oh, I didn't know that before. Wow. And some of that comes from the way that my grandma used to speak to her mum, which is my mum and like, oh, I'd never seen that before. Uh, and you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, grew up in a good Christian family, but our narrative in our family was like, it's all fine here. We're doing good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's, and that's a very a, common. It's a very nice, helpful, upbeat, positive m- mantra, but it, it doesn't deal very well with anger and failure and upset and, yeah, yeah. you know, difficult times. Because and you so sweep it under the carpet and yeah, don't... Or, yeah, and you, you think, oh, I don't want to offend anyone. And, mm. and so, it's, you know, so, it's, so waking up to that and being able to have some difficult conversations to be able to learn the skill to say to people, I'm not happy right now and I'm not happy with your behavior and this is why, but I can do that in a way that's friendly and real so that was amazing but i still in my mind was thinking i want to i'm going to shift to a different sector but alongside that i actually that same year read richard layard's book called happiness lessons from a new science and he was sort of critiquing the obsession with economic growth so i was having this personal change and then reading about like oh and actually this now is breaking our society and i was also developing a really strong interest in um, climate change and the sort of environmental problems at the time so i ended up realizing in this year of mba land when you do case studies and look at all these different sectors like I don't I'm not interested in ball bearing manufacturing aircraft sales toothpaste mm. fast moving consumer goods all the stuff we studied I'm like I don't want to sell people stuff they don't need mm. I want to do something of social purpose so I ended up leaving there I was the worst stat in the MBA thing because I, I actually came in on a higher salary and I <laughs> took a job with a lower salary at the end I'm like, I want to do something I care about yeah, like, so it's more um, about what they measure than anything yeah, yeah. that's, like, that's okay, a good you, reflection you of where we started me. isn't it about yeah. the, the wrong stats. measure you know yeah yeah, yeah. 
but I ended up going to work for something called the Carbon Trust on a topic that I'd become really passionate about, about climate change mm. and, and doing lots of work and using all my innovation and science experience and but also learning about behavior change. Like, why is it that we have these patterns of energy consumption and consumer behavior? And I started thinking about government policy and working with people inside government. Can, I, can I just yeah, jump sure. in for a second and ask you that, so for many people, so earlier on when you were talking about being Accenture, walking the career ladder, building success in inverted commas and stature around you and your own personal story Mm. um many people find themselves they they actually trap themselves into that world i think um in as much as bigger house bigger mortgage um more responsibility kids at private school whatever it is however far they go and i think that often what can happen is people can can without realizing it it goes so far that unpicking it is literally taking so much of the the comfort in every respect and their soul and their life and tearing it apart to be able to really do something different and, 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 and tread a different path. Now, I'm just really interested in it. how far had you got on, on in that side of things and how because because it sounded like it was quite from the way you described it, that it was quite easy for you to go from, OK, back pain. This is not good for me. I want out anyway. Go and do the MBA and then I'll work it out to I'm going to accept a lower salary? I think that's a really good question and a really good point that I've not thought about it in quite that way before. But yes, I have seen this in friends of mine who have got to that realisation of I want to change, but they're at the point then when they now have a, a, a big mortgage mm. and kids and you know school commitments and so on that are quite they're quite leveraged into if you like for want of a better phrase and it's hard to... They've got to keep peddling. Kind of a prisoner of. of their own success in I, some I ways. had this awakening I keep saying it sounds a bit too spiritual but you know this kind of recognition that I wanted to change things at the point when I was in a long-standing relationship but we hadn't yet bought a house together uh-huh. I had commitments and a certain sort of lifestyle but it wasn't that e- that difficult to change and we didn't have kids yet and so on and you know and actually Kate and I have both come from backgrounds that are relatively frugal and you know we'll still go to Sainsbury's and buy the basics range and argue over the price of a carrot, you know, and and, um, and, and carrots and are really cheap. That's <laughs> <laughs> maybe a slightly flippant example, but you know, I so we're big so bag we're, the other so day. We're not, we're, not, we're, you know, we're very no, fortunate. It's, I think blessed. it's such you an know. important point. It's, I know, you know yeah, exactly we, 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 right. we're blessed to own a house in a nice, you know, part of, you know, not that far outside of London and, um, and hugely privileged in many ways, but we're relative, we're not big spenders. Yeah. And, and I think that helps. And I think I know people who are, trapped in this kind of narrative you just told where they perhaps have <coughs> married someone who has a certain expectation of for us to be a successful family yeah. we have to have x yeah and that is really hard to get out of because it's sort of about if your value is tied to the material success it's harder to unpack and this is one of the things i think is so toxic about in the modern materialistic culture and especially the school system that says to kids you're valued through your academic and job success is that if you don't develop that inner worth it's much harder to let go of that's it trappings. exactly 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 so i think because i also this strong again it's a christian ethos to some extent in my family but the sense of you matter and you can make a difference from an early age i sort of think although i like to feel as though i've um created this for myself in some ways and it's come from my own conviction we all like to feel as though we've rebelled against our past actually i have to pay huge credit to my parents who both kind of come from that way of thinking and my mum jokes at me now she says uh, you know, there's a kind of tradition of missionary Christianity in the family, mm. people going off and sort of spreading the good word. And even though I let go of any sort of faith connection in my life, you know, in my early teens, she jokes that I kind of, I may have lost the, the Christianity, but I've kept the missionary zeal. Mm, mm. Yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. Like, and I you have, have to recognize that's yeah. always been there, yeah. but it was sort of suppressed in this world. So I, it was easier for me to get extricated from it than for some, but you know, taking a salary hit, there were some real questions around like, oh, what do I really prioritize here? And I actually found it really, I mean, again, I have never been, 
living on the poverty line so I recognize that's a very different experience but to have had a reshaping of what I can earn and what I can afford to buy really does make you think I'm doing this because it really matters to me mm. it's a really kind of I find it quite a empowering experience of sense of like okay there was a time when I was like between jobs having just let go of this position in Accenture and Kate was retraining to be an osteopath still and we were like oh we have like a fraction of the income we had and mm. that was really quite a powerful phase for us to work mm, out like what mm. are we going to do really but it, sa- it sounds like uh, between so something that has come up surprisingly often in the conversations we had so far is the importance of a support network yes in decision making and, and change and, and and it sounds like your your wife Kate um, has been part of your support network in bec- because you're sharing the psychology with one another and that almost because you have that psychology to, 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 to go back to and also you mentioned frugalness and certain characteristics in your upbringing that when you're faced with such a big decision and and i would say maybe you're a bit early in the decision making process that you haven't you haven't tied yourself in quite as much Mm. and the kids aren't there and all the rest of it but you're able to face it together and say no do you know what um we can do this we've got the tools the capabilities to do this yeah so this is this is really interesting so i i think that is true of um, Kate and my family and others supported me. And so when I, what led to me shifting to go to the Carbon Trust from the MBA land was was partly um, w- we met these leaders, supposedly in quotes, on the business degree who have been really successful people in all walks of life. And we were spoke, we, we read about their case studies. We thought these people are incredible. They've run companies and they've done amazing things. And then I had this really visceral, weird experience where when they came in face to face, we met them. I thought, oh my goodness. I don't want to be that person. They're yeah, all, they were awful. Mm, yeah. To get their quote success, they sacrificed either their health or their values or yeah. their families or something. And like, oh, with the exception of one person who came in and was radically different. And I'm like, he'd, he'd like run nonprofits and he he had much more self-deprecating, much less ego-led. And he was like, ah, oh, that's the kind of person I'd like mm. to be. Like, done amazing things, but sort of felt like led through a conviction. And somebody said to him, like, how have you chosen the path you've followed? You've had this amazing career. You work for BBC World. You've done started this startup. And his answer like really connected with me. He said, whenever anything's come up, I've just asked myself, does this make my heart get excited? Would I like mm. to get up in the morning yeah. and do this? And like, I use that as my single most important And that's again, li- listening to your gut. And, you, know, you know, really being conscious of what's going on. Because there's so many times, you know, I've known something is wrong, but I've done it. Yes, because that's People what's expected yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. of me, and I've done it, and I've no, and I, I can't, I can't really make it work anyway because I don't believe in it, and, and it's just, you know, that that realization that you were telling yourself, yes, <laughs> that it was the wrong choice, and it's uh, hard, the hard, the more that the expectations around you are different to what your heart's telling you, the harder it is. So that first move out of corporate life, people knew I'd be miserable in Accenture. The idea of going to the Carbon Trust, that seems like a worthy cause. Oh, loads of support. Family, Kate, friends are like, brilliant, great move, good for you. But then my that was my sort of mini awakening. The real thing was then, while doing that job, I realised that this whole environmental problem we face is linked to this thing I'd been reading about, you know, our obsession with economic growth. And I'd realised that I'd been much happier leaving corporate life, but there was still some stuff to explore. And I'd begun a family at that point. But I, I realized this, this passion, conviction for happiness was what really motivated me. And I met a guy called um, Neil Crofts, who'd written a book called Authentic, maybe like 50, 10, 12, 15 years ago. But one of his, um, it was about making a living by being yourself, which is, you know, authentic is a very overused phrase now. It was quite radical at the time. But he, he, he had this idea that any of us can find our purpose in life if we just answer three questions. And I'm like, that sounds good. I, I kind of feel more purposeful than I did, but I still have to know what that is. And his questions are, 
what what um what are you really good at? And so I was able to sort of think about well, I guess my main thing is like making things happen in response to complicated situations, whether that's in a corporate sense or mm. in a, you know, my which new, is which new is world. probably why you could last and succeed in Accenture because. That's exactly you what you're doing at the do core. Yeah. yeah. So is that, is that about joining the dots? Understand, um, taking all this information? It's about complexity of balancing lots of things. So the program, project management. It's also being able to simplify complex stuff and make yeah, it okay. accessible and then bring people with you. So yeah. something like something, yeah, com- leading complicated projects. I yeah, guess, okay. Yeah, I understand. The second question is, what are you passionate about? And um, that doesn't necessarily, and very often in my case, hadn't been the same as what I was good at. But for me, it had become like, I'm passionate about this idea of what really makes us happy, actually. Yeah. It's been on my mind now for years, and I've read a lot, and I recognize that loads of the stories <coughs> I was told, and indeed we're all told, are just a bit broken. And then the third question, maybe even more interesting to me, is what makes you angry? Hmm, and I've was like, this, yeah. I was like, well, I'm just really angry that we've created a society that's like, that's breaking us emotionally and breaking us planetary-wise with the whole environmental thing. And it's like, doesn't need to be that way if our narrative wasn't growth at all costs and it was like well-being at, at no expense you know it's like we should be growing well-being not growing wealth and that would radically change the world so I, then he encouraged you to write down this sentence that would become your life purpose and i wrote down this really badly worded thing like i like to use my organization skills and my passion for what really makes people happy to kind of change our culture and focus on what really matters or something ridiculously long like that <laughs> and wrote it down i thought well that's nice I put it in a drawer and didn't think anything more of it. And then, and this is still one of those most important, like kind of some chill down the spine moments, but I opened up the Sunday Times, I think it was, and Richard Layard, whose book I just read, had written a, like a kind of leader in the Times going, we need to change culture, um, passionate about happiness, you know, and then it was like, oh, by the way, if you're interested in helping out, we're looking for, <laughs> wow. we're, we're thinking of starting a movement kind wow. of thing. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got this amazing energy and I contacted him and met him and Anthony Selden and Jeff Margan and said like, you've got to let me run this thing. I, I'm not a psychologist. I've never done anything like it before. I've actually got a rather boring academic corporate background. Um, but I, I'm so passionate about this. Did so you, let me tell did you, you why. Did you show them what was in your drawer? Uh, I think I might have mentioned it in an interview. <laughs> yeah, it was good. the most bizarre interview ever in terms of it being so different to my corporate. Like they were asking me things like, tell me about how you feel towards your children. I'm mm. like, what an amazing question. I much prefer that to like, <laughs> tell me about your previous <laughs> yeah, yeah. work experience. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I came out of that conversation thinking, I've really blown that. I'm not sure this really works. But we... They were like, no, we want you to lead this. So I, I, I then had this the second example of, do I follow my heart or not? So like everything in me that I'd written this thing down and said I should do this, but it would involve leaving this job I really loved at the mm. Common Trust. And again, taking another cut in income. And this time when I said to my own wife, my mum and dad, my friends, I am thinking of leaving this job to do a happiness sort of thing. And they're like, <laughs> what? Like literally almost without exception, everyone was like, are you serious? Why would you do that? You like what you do. That sounds ridiculous. Happiness, what, I mean, what on earth are you talking about? And it was like, oh. how, did, how did you get past that? The piece of paper that I'd written. Really? Like, so you just, because I'd written, my purpose in life is to do this. And I'm like, and this is my opportunity so to do this. So, so, what you, so what you were presented with at that very moment was really an opportunity to be coherent. Yes. So this is what I say exactly. is important. And I've got an opportunity to do it. Why would I not do it? And the reason I wouldn't do it historically was I'm a people pleaser. People were like, yeah. Wow. So you stepped into the unknown as far as that's concerned. I now took myself as a recovering Lovely. people pleaser. Wow. Like I'm still really driven by that. I care yeah, yeah. what people think about me. But I'm able to, I was able to spend <coughs> at least a year. A lot of people I know were like, how is this silly happiness thing going? You know, like taking the piss. And, yeah. and kind of understandably, it was a bit, I mean, these days, 
this whole topic and the whole mental health thing has become hugely mainstream and a lot of people now come up to me and go oh that thing you've been doing is great and I'd love to see all the mindfulness stuff taking off and I'm like I'm sure you laughed in my face when <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like 10 years ago but, but, but that's, uh, that's, that's, success, that's success though but that in it? a way is because success, people, yeah. are, people are coming around to the idea and, yes. um, and, and you were a leader I, I, had the, I had the huge benefit of connecting with Richard and others and them giving me this platform. And I had every social entrepreneur's dream, which is having discovered what my passion and conviction is, to then find three very well-connected people who also thought that way, that had raised, admittedly, a relatively small amount of funding to do it and said, we back you to do this and gave me huge trust. It was an absolute dream because often when you have these convictions, you think, well, how do I fund this and who do I mm. have? And what I had with Richard and Anthony and Jeff was these very well-connected people who could provide a little bit of funding that allowed me to go, Kate, it's okay, I'm gonna quit my job, but we'll be fine. Not really knowing how that would work out. Yeah. And and they had the platform of, you know, we know this guy at the BBC who might be up for covering it, and we know these people who, wow. you know, so we at the time there were like 120 people who'd like um, connected via, in response, I think, to this article which had written, and they had a little sort of email list of them, and we didn't have a name. In fact, it was going to be called the Movement for Happiness, and as a friend of mine put it at the time, he says that sounds like a rather unusual cure for constipation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, we didn't call it that in the end, but this whole idea of action for happiness, this whole idea of individual action being so important, emerged. And you know, we've gone from that to this huge community, and it's been a journey and a privilege. And we've still messed up loads of stuff and got lots more to do. But the the, the really profound thing for me is going from us talking about this being a movement at the beginning when it was just a few of us in a room going we'd like this to be a movement to then waking up one morning and going oh this is an actual movement I'm getting emails from people in a place I'd never been to that I'd never met saying <coughs> they've, they've been on a course that some of our volunteers run in a place that I'd never been to that I'd never met and it's changed their life and that's that's amazing so we now have this kind of huge ripples and it's really the, I mean the thing that motivates me most and that makes me so glad I had the courage to lean into that discomfort is the messages we get of people saying just wanted to let you know that this thing has changed my life and yeah, it's like now we're doing this and it's like oh wow that's and you only need one of those every so often don't yeah. you to, to it's make the it the real fuel well, yeah. that keeps me when i'm there late at night or yeah. we're dealing with some problems and of course like anything you care about stuff goes wrong and there's more yeah, to do yeah. than what we do that is the best re-motivator every time yeah well and i think i think there's a there's a message to people listening that you know if somebody has helped them let or an organisation oh, has absolutely. helped them. Let them know because absolutely. those people that work in those organisations, it, it is bloody hard work sometimes. It yes. really, really is. Well, in fact, we talk a lot about gratitude and one of the great drivers of happiness is to be able to be more appreciative and grateful even in really difficult times. And one of the exercises that's got quite a lot of scientific evidence behind it now is if, if you cast your mind back to someone who's meant a lot to you in your life that you may never have thanked, taking time to contact them, I mean, if you can write to them, brilliant, but even just ringing them up and just saying, just wanted to acknowledge what you yeah. do, how much it means to me, how much you mean to me, and how grateful I am. That's one of it's really a profound thing to do. It's an absolutely amazing thing to receive. It's win-win. I mean, it's, it's a real win-win, and it's really beautiful. So I, yeah, would highly encourage anyone to do that. And what's what's the next big um, effort in respect of action for happiness and for yourself personally? So when we started Action for Happiness, we had a whole range of things we tried. And I, um, I brought this idea of dabbling and a, a strategy which isn't very strategic at all. Our strategy has really been to be reactive. Mm. Sort of, if you think about, instead of thinking about a classic charity approach of like, where's the need? Let's go mend the broken people, which of course is hugely important in, in many different spheres of life. Our model has been like, where's the energy and how can we best amplify it to build a, mo a movement? So we've gone sort of led by where are people enthusiastic to do things and how can we help tap into that enthusiasm and make stuff happen. 
And so we've, we've dabbled in conversations with policymakers. We've dabbled in toolkits for schools. We've dabbled in training in organizations. We've dabbled in online. We've written books. We've had a social media community. By far and away, the, most, the thing that leads to the words life-changing most are when people get together face-to-face in small mm. local groups. So people read books and they go online and they have seeking inspiring posters and they download the calendars and they come to a live event and so on and they say, oh, that's great, inspiring, interesting, I met nice people. When you, in a small group, get together face-to-face and talk, have these conversations that matter, something more powerful happens. You form friendships. You go, I'm going to change what I do now. I'm going to leave my job or I'm going to spend more time with these people or I'm going to stop that habit. And it <coughs> becomes behavior change in action <coughs> in a community. So we, we've realized that there's a model that we use behind this that is now at the heart of everything we, we're trying to do. So it, the model has got three components. And one is tune in, two is connect, and three is take action. So tuning in is about sort of mixture of mindfulness, a lot of what's going on really for me right now with a bit of kind of self-awareness, but also a little bit of gratitude of like we're so often in the mind space of like what's wrong. And when we consciously go, what's good? What am I grateful for? That shifts. And I, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing tuning in also means listening. Yes. Listen to, to others as well as yourself. Yes, yeah, so it's mindfulness of self, but mindfulness of the environment. Like what's going, what does the world need right now? Well, how are my friends? How are my relationships? Absolutely, mm. completely. Mm. So it's sort of, in, a, in looking inwards and looking outwards with clarity. Yeah, and part of that is encouraging people to asking those questions. Yes. You well, know, not just saying, how are you, and expecting the glib yes. response. So you know, being, really asking the question. Being willing to properly listen and to lower your own mask and so on. Yeah. But that feeds into the second part of this process, which is connect. So um, you can be as aware as you like, but if you're not in connection with others, we're these fundamentally social yes. species. So okay. the conversation is the then sharing the, this is where I'm at, where are you at? How is that? What's good? What's difficult? And that, that in a okay, non-therapeutic, but real, authentic, you know, getting beyond the football and the how was your holiday. Yeah. Um, and then crucially still, and again, back to the name Action for Happiness, the third is taking action, which is in light of that, in light of my own awareness, in light of the conversation, what am I going to do? And so every session of our course, and now every time we do anything, really, we say to people, what will you do as a result of today? And mm. it might be a tiny thing, like I'm just going to smile at more people on the way home. Mm. It might be a sort of new habit, like I'm going to download the Headspace app and try to meditate every day for a week. Or it might be something quite a step into the unknown, like I'm going to go visit some neighbors near me who I know are like older and might be isolated. Mm. I've never done anything like that before, but I feel like I want to help. You know, so whatever the action is, it's personal to you, but, but we get people to sort of think about when will I do it? Where will I be? And then to write it down and to vocalize it, to turn to someone next to them and say, this week, I'm going to set an alarm to remind myself to go to bed an hour earlier. Mm. Or this week, I'm going to try and do five acts of kindness with my teammates because we've had a really rough time. But, but be, be specific. And it's back to this yeah. whole kind of you know, behavior change stuff you guys know about. But we find that that is really powerful done in a community. So yeah, I think that's this great. Is, so we, what we really want to do is come back to your question. We want to do more of that. We want to help more people create change to this method of tune in, connect, take action in their local environments, in their workplaces, schools, communities, and scale that. And so in fact, at the moment, we've managed to get to the point where we're operating at the hundreds of courses reaching thousands of people every year. We want to be thousands of courses reaching tens of thousands of millions of people Mm. every year. Mm. And that's a big ramp up challenge, Mm. both funding wise and logistically and team. So that's what's on my mind. I'm really motivated by it, but it's hard. I'm so I'm so glad to hear the response that you've just given to that quite open question, because I had this burning personal question to ask you, um, which I'm now not going to ask you because you kind of answered it without realizing it, which was going to be, um, please, can you do something to fix the government and politics in this country? Because it's so broken. And I'm sure and it sounds like you 
you, you've sort of played some of that game, understandably, you know, what, and, and, and it's interesting to look at other countries and other methods of how we measure success or, or happiness or whatever the measure is. But I was, um, I was having this kind of conversation a few months back with a different group of people who were making the point that the biggest and most interesting markers of change in the Western world at the moment are grassroots. Mm. It's sort of working around the system rather than trying to change the system. And it sounds like you've, you've worked that out and you're well, on that. I, yes, I, I, I totally agree. And I think, well, not so we've worked it out, but I also wonder if what's broken, as you describe it, isn't so much the politics as the culture. Yeah. So I think to some extent, maybe it's easy to love and, ha- sorry, it's easy to hate and to love to criticise politicians. But to some extent, politicians try to reflect them. Their main aim is to be people pleasers. They want to reflect what the, they <laughs> feel the electorate wants to be re-elected. You know? yeah. and, and I think what we've seen in recent trends not just in the US and the UK, um, yeah, but, and now increasingly around, around the world, this, this uh, shift towards what's described as populism, but I see as m- sort of almost like a polarization in our society, it comes from a very real sense of people being A, afraid of pe- others, which is largely whipped up by the media actually, and a mm. kind of misunderstanding of human nature, and be a sense of being sort of left behind that there are some who are thriving and others who are not and that's very real and and so politicians tap into that and they create a narrative that goes with it so the reason that uh, a far right I mean, i'm not going to mention any particular political issues or indeed politicians but the reason a sort of right of center kind of uh, anti-immigration anti-others kind of way of seeing resonates with people is because it, it plays into that sense of like yeah i'm under threat mm. it's like we have this we know that we have this um <coughs> two modes of operating as individuals we have a kind of um fight or flight response which is very real mm. but we have a kind of kind of care and connect response mm. and and when we're in danger we go into fight or flight mode and everything else gets thrown out the window when we're kind of able to kind of rest digest connect broader things come in and the problem is we're having a mass societal fight or flight response to a combination of difficult environmental circumstances still the uh, you know upshot from the the, the big economic um, crash some time back the, the sense of like um, others being a threat which is really whipped up and that I'm in danger from people that aren't like me mm. which in fact doesn't bear witness when you actually look at what really goes on the, you know, the, the, the fear of the other is much greater than the actual reality of any, any difference well, it goes us. back and to what you were saying it's an opportunity so it's a huge opportunity for change but, but so, I, so the way I think of this now is that there are these two fundamental sides of human nature that are in tension with each other but they're both really real and both vitally important so one is the self-preservation instinct which we would never have survived without you know, as a species yeah, it helps. The, the darwinian <laughs> style of kind of survival of the fittest but also an unbelievably strong um again darwin observed this even more this kind of collaborative caring nature that mm. we again is fundamental to us and other mammals as well but he also and he also said it's not the it's not the the, the strongest in terms of species that survive, it's, it's not, the, it's not the strongest, it's not the most intelligent, it's the most responsive to change. Uh, uh, yeah, adapt, adaptation and collaboration and care are vital. And he gets, sometimes gets misassociated with this kind of, it's all about the selfish gene, which of course was Dawkins slightly rewording Darwin, I think. Um, but, but, the, but these two aspects of our nature are real. And in some ways, if you think about culture, and like that's the politics, it's the institutions, it's the, whatever, the media context, <coughs> The role of culture can amplify different aspects of our nature. And what we really want is a culture that tries to encourage the good side of human nature, that tries to encourage our compassionate side, our caring for each other, the the common good. You know, whether you're right of centre or left of centre politically, everyone has a sense of like there's a common good we want everyone to to thrive. You Mm. might have different views on that. 
Um, and yet, if you look at the, the culture we've created, it, it does the opposite. You know, uh, in schools, we're, we're told to like succeed at the expense of others. It's like mm. being the best. In workplace cultures, it's awful comp- you know, performance-related pay and like uh, competitive elements. And competition between companies is, creates innovation. Sort of the toxic cultures in companies where you don't mm. feel happy there. That's no good for anyone. Mm. And then in our in our culture, it's about you know the celebrity culture that praises the you know the uber successful and famous and the almost everywhere you look, the bit of human nature we're exacerbating is a self-preservation. How do I make me 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 better? Yeah. yeah. And with and especially as we've let go of religion, and I'm not not saying I'm pro-religion, but I am pro-values. Mm. We sort of we've got this massive um, void. In terms of like what is helping us live good lives and mm. care for each other mm. in a modern self-centered consumer focused mm. world we kind of just and i'm not saying actual happiness can fill that void but one of the things we're trying to do is to remind people of our shared humanity in a kind of secular well, values based me, way. me and we are you know they're the same thing they're the same thing yes so um so i think we uh, i think what i understood from your point and i'm trying to emphasize really is that one of the best ways to shift the politics and the system in quotes is to shift the culture which starts with us as individuals. Yeah. We are culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, that seems like a great um, point to th- to say thank you and to, and to wind up on, but um, maybe you could just remind people of how do they get involved in Action for Happiness? Um, how do they follow your story? So if you come to actionforhappiness.org, you can get involved with any aspect of what we're doing. Um, we'd love people to find out about our 10 keys to happier living, which is a kind of science-based framework that is you know, not a 10 commandments, but is the kind of the greatest research on what, what really does make us happy. We love people in schools to try out our school toolkit and um, the books we have for working, especially with younger children. We'd like people in organizations to consider using some of our resources, maybe running some training around well-being and resilience and changing the culture in the workplace. Um, we particularly love people to find courses and um, local happy cafes which our members have been setting up and ways to connect in their local communities and to step forward as volunteers you don't need to be a trained expert with these amazing volunteers who come in with passion and conviction and a bit of organisational skills but they're not trained experts and they make these amazing life changing experiences happen so you don't need to be a trained expert to do that we provide all the resources, the course, the materials the, the, the help to do that and, and we'd love people to come along and get involved face to face to support, to spread the word try out our action calendars um, and just sort of spread this idea that we can make a difference, but also that we can create a happier world and that it really matters. In fact, far from being this sort of fluffy, nice to have, this is at the very heart of what it means to, yeah, it's essential. to live a good life and to, to create a good world. So yeah. thank you for giving me the chance to have this very interesting conversation. Oh, I enjoyed it so much, Mark. Yeah, thank cheers. you. Thank you for taking the time. And um, we hope to, uh, to, to maybe talk to you again in the future and Lovely. see how this develops. Good luck with it. Thank, thank you. That's it, folks. For show notes, head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links, a quick summary, and you can also explore other conversations. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please tell your friends, give us a good rating, and remember to subscribe. We're also really keen to hear your feedback, so please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on Twitter. You can tweet us at lifedonediff, that's double F. If you fancy something different in your life, check out Do Something Different. It's really simple. Head over to www.dsd.me, go to the pro collection, choose a program that suits your goal. That could be being happier, more emotionally intelligent, or even quitting smoking. 
and then you're off. You'll be sent some small steps that stretch your comfort zone and help you achieve your goals. Enjoy, and until next time, keep on living life differently.